The Guardian. Radiation monitors in Sweden and Finland this morning are showing unusually high readings in places three times normal levels. At the moment, the source of those emissions is a mystery. Today, even the Soviets call it a disaster. A senior Reagan administration official said today there has definitely been a meltdown at the nuclear reactor in Chernobyl near Kiev. What about the reports over here, Ambassador, that uh, several thousand people have been killed in the accident? That's not true. That's not true. Was Mrs. Thatcher annoyed that you didn't tell the West earlier about this accident? The Soviet government told its people on television tonight that only two people have died. There are other reports, and they are very much unconfirmed, that more than 2,000 people have died. It is an accident with enormous ramifications. Moscow television claimed the Western media are spreading rumors. We will show a photograph taken by one of the workers at the Chernobyl nuclear plant taken just after. So there is no, there is no gigantic damage and there is no great fires. And there aren't thousands of people dead. 25 years ago, the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in the Ukraine was the scene of the worst nuclear accident in history. Explosions destroyed a reactor, releasing a cloud of radiation that contaminated large areas of Europe. And last month's tsunami and earthquake in Japan crippled the Fukushima Daiichi power plant. Damage to its cooling systems led to a series of explosions, significant radiation leaks and a crisis which brought the nuclear debate back to the table. I'm James Randerson, and this week's Focus podcast looks at what lessons we have learned from the Chernobyl disaster. We'll also be asking what Fukushima tells us about the dangers posed by nuclear energy today, and whether the UK should press on with its nuclear programme. Joining me to discuss these issues are environmental journalist George Monbio, anti-nuclear campaigner and author Dr Helen Caldicott, and Dr Lawrence Williams, former government advisor and the Professor of Nuclear Safety at the University of Central Lancashire. Welcome to you all. Thank you. Hello. Earlier in the week, governments from around the world pledged to build a gigantic steel shield to enclose the nuclear reactor in Chernobyl, costing around $2 billion. With the original concrete sarcophagus now beginning to crack, it's designed to prevent any further radiation from escaping. Uh, so if I can start off the discussion with you, George, um, you're on the record as, uh, as favouring nuclear power, uh, perhaps reluctantly, but for its um, low carbon credentials. Um, now, before we talk about the cost of nuclear power and, and um, its it, it sort of uh, place in the fight against climate change, can we just start with the legacy of Chernobyl? Um, what do you see as the most important um, aspects of that and, and the lessons we've learned, if any? Well, of course, it's a hideous and horrible disaster, the result of something we're very familiar with from the nuclear industry all over the world, which is a great deal of corner cutting, bad design, bad practice of all kinds, which um, applied particularly in the Soviet Union, but also applies to um, nuclear companies elsewhere in the world. And, of course, it's been a horrendously traumatic and unpleasant experience for everybody in, in the region and particularly for the very brave liquidators who in some cases sacrifice their lives in order to protect the lives of others. But in assessing its health impacts, what we have to do is what we have to do with all scientific questions, which is to rely on the best available science rather than the science which um, appears to support what we would like to see. In other words, to avoid the danger of cherry-picking. 
And we're helped in doing this by the fact that there's a body which exists precisely for the purpose of getting an overview of what the science of, of the impacts of radiation on health say, which is the uh, which is the UN Scientific Committee on the Effects of Atomic Radiation. And it's a bit like the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in that it pulls together um, scientists from many different disciplines to try to get an overview of the state of the science. And what they say about Chernobyl is that among the liquidators, um, the people trying to um, close the plant down um, and prevent any further releases of radiation, um, 28 people died, um, uh, uh, died in the immediate aftermath. A further 19 people have died subsequent to that, but most of them probably not from the impacts of radiation. There have been nearly 7,000 cases of thyroid cancer um, among children, largely caused by drinking contaminated milk, which they should have been prevented from doing by the Soviet authorities. Um, and thyroid cancer is very seldom fatal. It's a horrible disease to have, but it's, um, it's, it's eminently treatable. And beyond that, they say, there are no further known health effects. And so that, at the moment, is the best um, summary of the state of the science that we have. It's, it's starkly at variance with what many environmental campaigners have been claiming. Can I bring in um, Helen there? I mean, it, it, you don't agree with that assessment of the science. What do you think... Um, is is the the true sort of human cost from from Chernobyl? There was a, a report published by the uh, New York Academy of Sciences uh, last year, which for the first time translated five thousand articles, most of which were peer reviewed in the Russian literature, in in peer reviewed journals, uh, estimating the number of deaths, illnesses, congenital deformities cataracts, cardiovascular disease, looking specifically to the liquidators. Now, this was the first time any Slavic papers were translated into English. Um, this was discussed openly um, at the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War Conference in Berlin, which I opened uh, two weeks ago. Uh, and one of the authors was there, Yablokov. Or, or the person who put it together. Um, their estimates are that nearly a million people have already died from Chernobyl, but that is just the beginning. A nuclear accident never ends. A large amount of plutonium escaped from that reactor. Plutonium has a half-life of 24,400 years. It is one of the most toxic materials known, such that a microgram is carcinogenic, a millionth of a gram, but it may be a nanogram, 10 to the minus 9 grams. A lot of that is, is cast all over Europe. But uh, many other, well, 200 isotopes, radioactive elements, actually escape. Some very short-lived and some very long-lived, such that now 40% of Europe is radioactive. Um, contrary to what George says, uh, over 58,000 people developed thyroid cancer. Of those, about 23,000 or so have died. Others are alive, but they have what's called the Chernobyl necklace, that their thyroids have been removed and there's a big scar at the base of their neck. doesn't mean to say they won't still die of thyroid cancer. Uh, cancer often takes quite a while to kill people. Of the 850,000 liquidators, 
about 25% have died. In fact, one of the liquidators was at the conference discussing uh, what has happened to his friends, most of whom have died. Uh, many of the liquidators have, have had children, uh, many of which have gross congenital deformities. In fact, there are pediatric uh, hospitals now full of the most grossly deformed children that we have ever seen in paediatric literature. And there's a film called Chernobyl Heart, which you should watch, that shows these children. We don't expect to see genetic abnormalities yet. In fact, it may take 20 generations for genetic abnormalities to um, express themselves. So it takes a long time in human beings can, to see can genetic I just... diseases. And you... this is from peer-reviewed literature, not quite as carefully peer-reviewed as the Western literature. Um, and the truth is WHO, UNSCAR and IAEA have virtually not looked at what's been happening at Chernobyl. Right. I would oh, let say me just... this is the biggest medical cover-up in the history of medicine. I mean, that's, wow, that's quite a claim. Uh, George, I mean, could you respond to that? Yes, thank you. I am absolutely staggered that Helen is still citing the Yablokov paper as the main plank of her evidence for what is going on. This is a paper which even the body that published it, the New York Academy of Sciences, has distanced itself sharply from it, pointed out that it's not been peer-reviewed by anyone, and that its methodology is all over the place. I mean, it's... It, 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 its methodology is based on the assumption that all increases in disease in the region since Chernobyl were caused by Chernobyl. Now, this is a region, of course, in which the Soviet Union has collapsed. Huge changes have taken place. Just to give you an indication of how wildly inappropriate and impossible this assumption is, they include amongst the diseases supposedly caused by radiation, though there is absolutely no link established with radiation, cirrhosis of the liver. Now, um, can we think of a few reasons why cirrhosis of the liver might have increased in, in, in these regions since I'll, I'll, 1986? Let, let's let's um, leave that I mean, one. This is just, let's let's uh, leave okay. that one hanging there. I just want to bring in Professor uh, uh, okay, Williams. Can, can, I just say, can I just say one more thing about, uh, about the claims that she's making? I mean, she ends... Um, uh, well, she, she, says, she says two things. First of all, that there's all these um, deformities caused. Um, so far, there is no evidence whatsoever that these deformities are the result of Chernobyl. And the danger is that we are exploiting extremely vulnerable people here, pe people with deformities and genetic diseases, and using them, parading them like a kind of medieval circus, and using them to try to support a political point. And I think that is grossly irresponsible and a pretty horrible thing to do. Okay, but, I, I'd, like, I'd like to... Up. No, I, I, let me, okay, uh, let me bring in sorry, Professor sorry. Williams. I mean, I, I think from a, uh, the point of view of a, a, a layperson trying to make sense of this debate, it must be... I mean, you know, it's, it's very, very difficult because on the one hand you have um, uh, someone saying that, you know, a few thousand people have died... Um, you know, based on uh, the, the, the sort of, quotes, authoritative assessment. And then on, on the other side, we're talking, you know, nearly a million and, and more to come. I mean, it, it, it's very confusing. I, I, I agree with you. Um, I mean, I'm not an expert in, in radiation biology uh, at all. Um, but I, I do have an understanding of um, the role of the international communities and especially uh, the International Atomic Energy Agency and, and UNSCIA uh, and those official publications, I've no reason to believe that in any way, shape or form that they represent a cover-up. Um, and, and I think we, we, we sometimes tend to forget that you know, we actually live in a radioactive world. 
you know, the ground that we walk on is radioactive. You know, the, the, the air that we breathe, the water that we drink, the food that we eat. We are, we are naturally radioactive uh, within our own bodies. Uh, we are subject to constant cosmic radiation. So to say that, you know, somehow or other, you know, 40% of Europe is, is radioactive, is radioactive in what sense? Um, you know, just the whole world is radioactive. Uh, on a slightly different point, I mean, what impact did this um, this huge event have on the nuclear industry? Well, I, I think you know one of the uh, the major impact of, of of Chernobyl, uh, you know, showed that you know when you have a, a a design which is fundamentally flawed, you know, operated by people with a a poor um, safety culture, operating in an environment which is isolated from what's been going on in in the rest of the world you know you you are inevitably um you know heading for for a disaster which is which is what happened um what what i think chernobyl did do is it was opened up the soviet union uh to much more of a, of an influence of of what's been going on in in the, in the rest of the world in terms of improved uh nuclear regulation i mean they didn't have regulation in, in the way that we have it in the West, which, which uh, provides governments and the public with assurance that the nuclear industry is being properly managed and properly operated. So there was a, a, a great opening in, in terms of uh, reviewing the way at a global level, you know, one needed to regulate the, uh, the nuclear industry. Um, you know, I, I think it also opened up the, the need to get more universally acceptable uh, nuclear safety standards. And so the International Atomic Energy Agency standards, which, you know, had been developing since the, uh, you know, the mid-70s, but were was sort of based on the lowest common denominator, suddenly started to take on a new significance. And, and over the years, they've gradually evolved now into um, sort of very high-level goal-setting uh, standards, which, you know, we all should uh, aspire to deliver. So I think the, the impact on the nuclear industry, you know, has been much more open, much more sharing of experience, much more recognition of the importance of high quality, high um, quality designs, uh, much tougher uh, regulation, um, and uh, you know, a recognition that um, you know, poor designs are, are not acceptable. The earthquake and tsunami which hit Japan on the 11th of March caused devastation to the northeast of the country, with thousands losing their lives. It also triggered a nuclear crisis at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant, which the authorities say will not be brought under control for at least six months. The Guardian's science correspondent Ian Sample explains how the crisis unfolded. When the earthquake struck Japan, sensors at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power station detected the tremors and they automatically shut down the reactors at the site. But the earthquake actually damaged the power cables running to the nuclear power station and that meant that uh, standby generators had to cut in to keep the reactors cool. Now that worked for a while but the earthquake obviously caused a tsunami, an enormous wave that hit into the nuclear power station and the problem was that the generators were inundated with water. There were three reactors at the site that had no means of power to keep them cool and another problem was that there were spent fuel rods in pools above the reactors that also needed cooling. Now in the first few days of the crisis we saw a range of techniques being used to try and cool the reactors 
First of all, there was uh, water was dropped from helicopters and the like, and from water cannon trucks and so on, to try and keep the reactors cool, but also to keep the spent fuel cool in the uh, storage pools. Now, that has worked up to a point, but as the crisis has gone on, different problems have come up. There were, in the very early days, a number of hydrogen explosions at the site which uh, took the roofs off two of the nuclear power plants. Now, those hydrogen explosions were reasonably superficial. They destroyed the outer buildings, but the reactors are very well protected. They're inside a number of containment facilities within those buildings, and those appear to have uh, remained uh, intact, if not completely intact. Without any pumps working to get water into the reactors, the workers at the site had to pump in seawater to try and keep fuel in the reactors cold, and that led to a number of problems in itself. One that they are still battling with now is there is an awful lot of radioactive material in water around the site. They have in excess of 60,000 tonnes of water just lurking around in the turbine buildings and in trenches in the site. And obviously, we know that some of this has leaked out into the sea. This will be a clean-up operation that will rival Chernobyl, the contamination of the ground and the area immediately around the site and at the site itself is going to take an awfully long time to, to deal with. The immediate concern really is for the workers at the site and they have been rotated in fairly quick succession to make sure they aren't exposed to dangerous levels of radiation themselves. Some workers have been taken to hospital with uh, suspected radioactive contamination after either stepping into water that's been radioactive or just receiving high doses from being around the area. But it will really be a while before we know the full picture on the health risks to those workers. Further afield, most of the public uh, living around the area of Fukushima were evacuated beyond the 20-kilometre zone and many of those beyond the 30-kilometre zone, which uh, the exclusion zone that was imposed. But there were some people who were slow-moving, who stayed within the area in the first few days, and they were some of those were encouraged to take iodine pills to prevent probably the greatest risk from the nuclear uh the radiation leaks, which is iodine, uh, radioactive iodine, which can get into the thyroid gland and cause cancer. Ian Sample there. Fukushima was subjected uh, to one of the harshest possible tests. Um, Helen Caldicott, what do you think Fukushima tells us? I mean, that was quite an exceptional event, that tsunami. But, uh, um, you know, obviously the safety systems didn't work in that case. The strength of a chain depends uh, upon its weakest link. <clears throat> and uh, since we've uh, split the atom, which is the most enormous energy that man has ever captured, uh, and Einstein said the splitting of the atom changed everything save man's mode of thinking, man must be infallible. And unfortunately, as a physician, I know that, and we all know that people are not infallible, they're fallible. Um, and these reactors were built on an earthquake fault. Yes, they withstood the earthquake, but we got a tsunami. Um, and this is going to happen throughout the history of the nuclear age. We cannot build nuclear reactors anymore because, in fact, even if there aren't meltdowns at Chernobyl or, you know, the four at Fukushima, we've got the radioactive waste, which lasts for up to half a million years. There's no way to store it safely it will leak inevitably and concentrate into food. You can't taste, smell or see the radioactive elements. And I must say, Lawrence, that background radiation, yes, 
it's responsible, uh, as physicians know, for about 30% of the cancers we already see. It has caused evolution by mutation of genes, so fish develop lungs, birds develop wings, humans evolved. We all carry several hundred genes for disease like cystic fibrosis, diabetes and the like. Um, and as you increase the background radiation, these diseases by mutation in the genes of the eggs and sperm will increase in frequency throughout the time history. And radiation, internal radiation like plutonium getting into your lung, irradiates a tiny volume of cells with a very high dose. The ICRP and the IAEA and the WHO talk about external radiation, but there are differences. Internal emitters cause very much damage to cells and cause cancer in very minute amounts. You can't take external radiation, which does cause cancer, as we know, and compare it to internal emitters. And that's a difference, and that's not what, what is being taken. Sorry, I, 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 I sorry okay, let, let, uh, Professor Williams, if you'd like to respond briefly. Yeah, I, I was only going to say, I, I, I fully understand, you know, the, the, uh, the need to control, you know, the levels of, of internal radiation. But what I was pointing out was we are subject to internal radiation, you know, from the, from the food that we eat. I mean, I think every one of us, just from the, the potassium in our bodies, is being subjected to 15 million radioactive disintegrations per hour. Okay, I, I'd just like to bring the discussion back to Fukushima. George, uh, you are um, on record with a, um, well, quite a, a controversial comment piece that, that said that uh, the Fukushima crisis actually uh, allayed some of your fears about, uh, about nuclear power. Could you explain that? Yes, I mean, of course, it's just like Chernobyl. It's a truly horrible crisis and a very traumatic one. Um, and and it also reflects um, some very poor design and poor management on the part of the plant operators, let alone um, very poor siting of a nuclear power station on a fault line and a tsunami-prone coast. Um, but it's been subject, as you've said, to the most severe of all possible tests, the result has been the worst of all possible nuclear disasters, or certainly the highest on the scale, uh, up there with Chernobyl as a, as a um, factor seven um, uh, nuclear disaster. And even so, though it's been horribly disruptive and it's caused evacuations and all the rest, no one, as far as we know, has yet received a lethal dose of radiation. Now, that's not to say that this makes nuclear power good and bright and happy and ambrosia and carrot juice and any of that, um, but compare it, say, to the coal industry, which I'm afraid is, is the default option for many governments, and if they abandon nuclear, that's the way they're likely to go, where in China alone, 2,400 people die in mining accidents, coal mining accidents, every year, and many, many more contract hideous lung diseases, which ensure that they die a very long and lingering and, and profoundly unpleasant death. And I just think that if the result of Fukushima, as it appears to be, is first of all that governments abandon nuclear power plants and replace them with coal or gas, um, and secondly, that the renewables which were destined to replace nuclear power are instead, oh, sorry, to replace fossil fuels are instead used to replace nuclear power, um, then in both cases we will have 
traded a bad option, nuclear, for a much worse one, okay. fossil I, fuels. I'd like to get on to the, the, the question of renewables and climate change in, in a minute. So um, if I can just ask Professor Williams, um, you know, governments around the world have now paused their nuclear programs, including the UK, a, a brief pause, um, in response to Fukushima. Uh, is that an overreaction? Uh, I think it is. Um, I, I think, you know, Fukushima, as you pointed out, was uh, faced with probably the largest earthquake that Japan's uh, had to face. It was then hit, uh, I mean, as far as we know, and there's still, you know, more more sort of information to come out. But as far as we know, the, uh, the the plant responded as required following the earthquake. The emergency core cooling systems uh, pumps came in, um, and then it was hit by uh, a 14-meter tsunami, which effectively took out all electrical power uh, for these three operating reactors. And yet, uh, you know, the, the plants were robust enough, and and the workers were. Uh, clever enough uh, to to keep those three uh, reactors under some level of control, so that you know there, there wasn't a, a, a major catastrophic release of radioactivity uh, into the air. Uh, so I, I think we shouldn't over over react. Um, we should look at the particular circumstances. We should look at uh, how well. You know, we have designed our own plants in terms of the defense in depth uh, for a whole variety of, of plant malfunctions and external hazards, which we we do require uh, to be demonstrated uh, to our regulators uh, to, to, to ensure that, yes, uh, and, and I agree with Helen, I mean, the, the energy density in the atom is enormous compared to any other form of uh, energy conversion that we use today. Uh, the, the trick is managing that hazard potential such that the risks to both the workers and the general public are low. And I believe that modern reactor designs, uh, modern nuclear facilities, countries which operate strong uh, and uh, rigorous independent regulation ensure that the risks to the people and the public and society are acceptably low. Well, of course, the big question for the for the UK now is is whether we should push ahead with a new generation of nuclear power stations. Um, I mean, George's argument, Helen Caldicott, is that, um, y- you know, this is the least worst option in a sense. Um, unpalatable though it is, um, the, the, the deaths associated with um, coal pollution and coal mining uh, mean that it's it's just not as bad. What do you, what do you say to that argument? Well, first of all, <laughs> nuclear power plants don't stand alone. The uranium has to be mined, and it's usually mined in areas of, of indigenous communities. And if you look at those communities and the studies done epidemiologically, many of those communities suffer very high rates of cancer already from mining uranium, which is dangerous. And I go into that in my book, Nuclear Power is Not the Answer. So all the way through the nuclear fuel cycle, people... Workers and civilians are exposed to radiation. And, and, Lawrence, I would say that radiation is cumulative. Every dose you receive adds to your risk of getting cancer or your genes being mutated in your eggs and sperm. So, therefore, under no circumstance... Can I... I I was going to say, Professor Williams, I'll come to you in a second. Just carry on. Um, In every medical textbook, it states that under no circumstances should anyone be exposed to any unnecessary radiation because it is cumulative. Each dose you receive adds to your risk of getting cancer. Now, we don't want to jump from the global warming frying pan into the nuclear fire. This is 
medically contraindicated. I agree with George. We must stop burning coal. Absolutely. James Hansen talks about this. We must stop fissioning uranium because it's a cancer-inducing industry and it increases weapons proliferation around the world over time. But I commissioned a study about two or three years ago called Carbon-Free Nuclear-Free, um, and I held a conference on uh, nuclear power and global warming, and it was suggested that, you know, there's enough renewable energy now available that we can, by, nine, by 2040, America could be both carbon-free, nuclear-free. The person who did the study, he's a plasma physicist, a quantum physicist, was very sceptical. It's a very important study. You can download it at ieer.org. It's by Arjun Makajani. And in truth, all the renewables that we require now are here. They're cheap. It's a heterogeneous collection of solar, wind, increasing the grid, uh, geothermal, tidal, you name it. But we have to upgrade the grid, and we have there's enough wind west of the Mississippi to supply the whole of America with three times the electricity it currently uses. Unfortunately, the politicians are in the pockets and this is true of the coal, the oil, and the nuclear companies. We know this, particularly in America, and the people must demand that renewable energy be used to replace both coal, oil, and nuclear. And we must save energy. Americans waste 28% of the electricity they currently use, and 20% is generated by nuclear power. I mean, it all stands to reason. George Monbiot, the way out of the global warming frying pan is through energy efficiency and, and wind power and solar power. Why, why, why aren't you pushing for that? I mean, you know, the, the well, argument here is that, uh, that nuclear and coal interests are the ones that are, are driving government policy, you know, behind the scenes, and, and we should be fighting that. Yes, I wouldn't disagree with any of that. Um, I definitely put energy efficiency and conservation and renewables um, well at the top of the list, um, and I completely endorse the effort to try to move towards a 100% renewable, um, um, renewable electricity. Um, and I also agree um, that um, there's been very powerful lobbying by both the coal and the nuclear industries to try to prevent that from happening. But the situation right now is as follows. In Germany, for instance, we're looking at a shutdown of many of their nuclear power stations on the promise that um, they will be building new wind and connecting it up to the regions which are currently served by nuclear power stations. Now, the lines required to make that connection themselves will take at least 12 years to build. And in the meantime, it looks as if Germany will be um, getting its electricity not from renewables but from coal. And, and that the renewables which will be deployed will be replacing nuclear rather than replacing coal. And that's exactly where we do not want to go. And in many parts of the world, that seems to be the pattern which is, which is rolling out, that, that the renewables which were destined to replace fossil fuels are instead to be used to replace nuclear power. And that the um, nuclear power plants which were going to have been running for, for some more time are to be replaced with fossil fuel instead. And I, the only uh, way in which I would disagree with, with what Helen is saying about coal versus nuclear is that it's, it's the other way around. It, it, it's out of the nuclear frying pan and into the coal fire because in terms of both impacts on human health, 
and environmental impacts. Bad as nuclear is, coal is many, many times worse. Well, rightly or wrongly, the Fukushima crisis is, is changing public opinion. Lots of my relatives live in places in Tohoku like Fukushima and Miyagi and they are having a tough time. So I'm here to speak out on their behalf. I've had worries about Japan's nuclear policies for some time. And if we don't take advantage of this opportunity, who knows when the anti-nuclear movement will have this much energy again. So I'm here to say we must get rid of nuclear energy. That was a demonstration against the nuclear power industry in Tokyo in the days that followed the Fukushima crisis. Now, uh, Professor Williams, I mean, how important do you think public opinion is here? I mean, in, in one sense, nothing about the industry has changed between, you know, February and where we are now, except that there's suddenly a very, very visual um, example of what can go, go wrong. Um, but do you think it's going to have a material effect, the number of people who are now thinking about nuclear power in a different way? Well, I think, I guess in, in, in democracies, one, one has to take account of public opinion. Um, and at the end of the day, it's the public through their governments will decide uh, you know, their future in, in terms of their prosperity, their, their, their economies and, and their directions of travel. Do you think they're susceptible to the kind of arguments that, that George Monbiot is making, though, that um, you well, know, George, this might be bad, but there are things that are much worse? Well, no, George is making some you know, very measured and, and well-balanced uh, arguments in that if you're going to make decisions, make decisions on the basis of the facts, not on the basis of being scared one way or the other. And I think it is incumbent upon uh, everybody that, that uh, you know, sort of in, in, in the industry and, and, uh, and others with, it, with an interest, make the, you know, the facts very clear so that decisions can, can be made. There is no easy solution. Um, and, and, and I think you know when you, when you start looking into renewables, yes, I think in the future we, that there will have to be a, a, a mix, a balance uh, of, of all different types of energy conversion systems. But um, the, the energy density in some of these forms, like wind, is just so low that you know the amount of uh, materials that you have to produce to develop and, and generate the electricity and the, the sheer footprint of the area required is so large that there comes a limit to how much you can actually get. And, uh, you know, one has to bring in, in, in the issue of affordability here. Um, you know, how much can society afford to pay? And that's a, that's a decision that, they, you know, the politicians and society will make on the basis of the facts. I mean, affordability is a, is a, is a very important point. And, uh, and um, those who don't want to see the extension of nuclear power say, well, actually, the, the costs of that form of energy, although they may look low in terms of the, uh, the, the cost um, per unit of electricity, they're actually much higher because of all of these hidden costs about cleanup and storage and, um, uh, yeah. and, and insurance and things like that. Uh, George Monbiot, you, the, the stance that you've taken on this it has caused well a, a rift with many of your colleagues in the uh, in the green movement i guess i mean um not just in the how, green movement the guardian as well <laughs> how do how do you how how has that sort of affected you and do you um and, and why do you think uh, that, that that many people you know retain that viewpoint despite all of the climate change arguments 
Uh, retain the viewpoint on costs, you mean, or, or, or in general? Well, just in general about, about nuclear power. In general, yeah. Um, well, I, I can completely understand you know, where the anti-nuclear movement is coming from. Um, you know, to begin with, this industry was intimately connected with the manufacture of nuclear weapons. Um, it was shrouded in secret, secrecy and opacity. It was completely unaccountable. Um, it still and is, it isn't it? A, well, 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 well in, in many ways it is, but it's not nearly uh, as much as it was when it was part of the nuclear weapons industry. Um, and it posed at the time a very serious threat to human existence on Earth. Um, since the introduction of the Euratom Treaty and the work of the in, in, um, International Atomic Energy Agency, whose purposes are to separate and to keep separate the nuclear power and the nucle nuclear weapons industry, uh, that that link has been broken almost everywhere, possibly not in Iran, which is why Iran is the subject of considerable suspicion o over this issue and why I believe it should not be allowed to um, do any further nuclear developments unless we can be absolutely sure that these have nothing to do with nuclear weapons production. Um, uh, but the, the, the initial anti-nuclear movements were extremely well-founded and made a very important contribution indeed to the safety of humankind. What seems to have happened subsequently is that many people within these movements, as far as the science of the health impacts of radiation is concerned, have really been talking only to each other and that they've missed the enormous accumulation of scientific work on the health impacts of radiation, which tell a totally different story to the one that they've been telling each other. And now this is very pertinent and familiar to me because I've spent many years dealing with climate change deniers who do exactly the same thing. They have their own facts, which bear no relationship at all to what's been going on within science, but they stick to them rigidly and will not admit any other point of view. Now, I'm not saying that's the case with all anti-nuclear campaigners by any means, but, but I'm saying that we do have to apply the same rigorous standards of scientific evidence when it comes to radiation as we as we demand when it comes to climate change. Helen Caldercott, I'm going to give you the last word. Um, George, is, George is saying that, that people in the anti-nuclear movement are not applying uh, the same intellectually rigorous standards to their side of the argument as they, as they do to the other and are little better than climate deniers. Mm. Interesting. The, the most uh, interesting audiences and receptive audiences I ever address are my fellow physicians. I gave grand rounds at the Vancouver Children's Hospital recently to about 300 uh, interns and, and paediatricians and they're absolutely shocked because we're not taught about internal emitters and nuclear power and isotopes in medical school but we're all taught about radiation. There's absolutely no question at the end. Um, it's all scientifically and rigorously known within medicine, everything I say. I recruited 23,000 physicians in the early 80s uh, to be both opposed to nuclear power and nuclear war. We put an ad in the New England Journal of Medicine about the medical dangers of nuclear power and serendipitously it was published the day after Three Mile Island melted down. We got 500 new members in a flash. There is no dispute within the medical community about the medical consequences of radiation and internal emitters. 
so therefore, I don't understand what George is talking about. It's not the anti-nuclear movement per se. We're talking about medicine here. And actually, my specialty is cystic fibrosis, the most common fatal genetic disease of childhood. Um, and I've helped many children die. And there are 2,600 such diseases now described, um, all of which will increase in frequency down the time track. And that is absolutely not disputed by my fellow colleagues. I addressed the, uh, the American Association of Pediatrics recently too. So this, this is just generally accepted. When did you and last I don't publish a scientific paper on these from issues? At all as a physician. And uh, a scientist. When did you last publish a, doctor, a George, scientific paper? You read the medical literature. I mean, would you like a reference to how uh, the arm uh, uh, connects to the shoulder? I mean, I can find one in Grey's Anatomy if you want me uh, to. Helen, I'm asking you a simple question here. You, 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 you're presenting yourself as a scientist. I am um, a scientist, scientific George, expertise and I'm a highly qualified physician. When did you last publish a scientific paper? George, I'm a highly qualified physician. I was on the faculty at Harvard Medical School. My specialty yeah. is cystic fibrosis. Then we're going to wind I, it up there. I think, I think we've, uh, Helen has given the answer that, that, that she would like okay. to give. That's all for this week's Focus podcast. Thanks to my guests, George Mombio, Dr. Helen Caldicott, and Professor Lawrence Williams. I'm James Randerson, and the producer was Peter Sale. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.